0: It is good to see everyone. So let me recap. If you're new with us and you're not familiar with the Bible or the story of Nehemiah, in the Bible we're going to be today, we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 5 through 73. So 73, sorry about that. Don't worry. We're, we're only doing some select verses today. Um, today is some more lists that, w- that we've had in the past. But uh, the, the story of Nehemiah is this essentially, the story of the Bible is this that even though God rescued his people, the Israelites, from Egyptian slavery and brought them into their own land called them to be a just and righteous nation to shine the light of his revelation to the world they messed up and god sent foreign nations to conquer them the the babylonians and the assyrians to drag them into exile and they're in exile for 70 years and many return and Nehemiah is one of the people who returns, and he was the, uh, the uh, cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, and so he secures resources from Artaxerxes to actually help rebuild Jerusalem, to refortify it, and to restore it. And so they're in this transition now. We looked at it, I think, the last uh, two weeks ago, so the last time we spoke on this, that they had finished building the wall and finished um, Restoring the gates that have been burned down. So now the city is secure and fortified and they're transitioning from that project to now we've got to focus on restoring our culture and our customs and the proper pursuit and the proper worship of God. They're in this transition period. And what we're going to see is in this passage, we're going to see that, hey, things are, the project's mainly complete, but now we, we need people we got to add people. The city's been, been restored, but there's, there's hardly anybody there. we got to add people. It's kind of like a, like a Kevin Costner build it, and they will come kind of fill a dream situation going on here. So something like that. So let's, let's pray, and then let's turn to the word. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and uh, for these, these, these ancient truths, this, these ancient stories and events uh, in history that, that you were working through time and again to bring about your purposes. And I pray that you would illuminate your word to us, that we would be excited and on fire for the truth and for the glorification of who you are. Lord, show us how this is relevant for our context for today. Give us your vision for life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 7, starting in verse 5. It says, Then my God... This is Nehemiah talking. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials. Remember, these are the people we've had a lot of problems with already. The, the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time, no longer king but at the time, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, it's a different Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai. Bilsham, Miss Pireth, Big Vi. It's a good one. Big Vi. Neum, Bayana. I'm going to pause there and we're going to jump to verse 39. So, between here and verse 39, just a big list of families and numbers of families and how many people are in the different families, all right? So, if you're, if you're disappointed that I'm not reading it all today, then, then, then we have free Bibles in the lobby and you can go and read it for yourself. Verse 39, now it gets into the priest. The priests, the son of Judea, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. And then again, we're going to jump to verse 66. And now this is recording, or between, between 39 and 66, they just record a bunch of servants, different servants, the sons of Solomon's servants, um, and then also some other people whose genealogy had been lost but they they don't know their family heritage. They don't know who they are, so include some of those. But now we're jumping into uh, verse 66, and this is now the current total of everyone who's present and also financial gifts that they gave, all right? So verse 66, it says, The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,720. A lot of donkeys. Verse 70. Now some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments and 500 miners of silver. And then we're going to jump to verse uh, 73. Uh, 71 and 72 is just more gift amounts that were given, but verse 73 ends the, the chapter like this. It says So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is God's word. So, what we see happening here is we see, yes, the city is secure, praise God for that, but it's sparse with population. So, Nehemiah has the big challenge now of convincing people of the importance of populating the city. He's got to invigorate and envision the people to say, we've got to populate the city now. There's no Starbucks there to entice people in. Don't have any of those luxuries yet. That'll come eventually at some point. Uh, But he's got this task ahead of him. And God puts it into his heart to conduct a census and to get the people together and to count the people. Now, Nehemiah is not a prophet, but it says that God put it in his heart to do this. Really cool little insight here. Uh, Actually, this is a big thing throughout the Bible, throughout Christian history and today, is of course, the main way that God speaks to us is through his revealed word recorded to us in the Bible. That's everything, that's the the foundation to it all. But also, and we see here in Nehemiah, not a prophet, but there are times that God speaks to our hearts course, the heart can be deceived. So we we come back to the word. We we talk to other Christians to help us discern God's voice. Of course, we do all that. But this is really important that we're paying attention to and open to God speaking to our hearts and guiding us in key decisions at key times. And this is uh, actually very important because you might uh, think, and as I read this, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might think, wait a second, Didn't King David do a census and God like punished him, condemned him for it? So like, how come Nehemiah can do one, but David can't? Well, it all comes down to motive. It all comes down to motive. David was doing it completely out of disobedience to God, out of uh, hubris. And uh, he was condemned by God for that. But actually, in Numbers chapter 1, God had told Moses to take a census. That's what the book of Numbers is. a book called Numbers in the Bible. Is full of numbers because they're just numbering people. And so, and God told him to do that. So, hey, this is fine. If God's telling you to do it, it's a good thing. If God's telling you not to do it, it's a bad thing. That's how things are right and wrong, is God defines them. So, the census is really important. Getting the population count is really important because then you can identify what needs you have and what resources you have. So if you're trying to repopulate a city like Nehemiah is trying to do right now, you're trying to cultivate a thriving community and, and, and a bustling city, you're trying to do that, then, then you need to quantify, well, what do we need for this? Like, we're going to need schools, and we're going to need you know, a marketplace, and we're going to need housing, and we're going to need waste removal, right? That's important. We're going to need all these different things for civil life. Or, you know, people living in a shared environment are going to need to figure out all these things. And so we've got fig- to look at what, how many people do we have? What are they all going to need? And what are the resources amongst them in order to help build this society together? Now, what we learn from this, and this makes total sense, is the first wave of people, all the people that have been returning from exile up until this point, have mainly, almost exclusively, been settling in the towns around Jerusalem. And it, it makes sense because Jerusalem was in major disrepair. Not a particularly safe place to live. And so it makes sense that people would, would be scattered around in these towns around the region and not move directly into Jerusalem. Some people were in Jerusalem, but not, not many. It was sparse. It was empty. So for this place to become a, a thriving, bustling city, a vibrant place that's now the center of life for God's people where God's people can worship God. It's a center of worship for God where they can hear the law taught to them from the priests, they can understand it, where there could be economic opportunities in this place, where there could be a, a place of defense from foreign invasion as well. All of these things, for, it to, for the, the city to actually become all those things, the population has to grow. And if the people don't understand this at this point, if they don't understand this is the next step of the journey. We've crossed this massive milestone of the fortification, refortification of the city. Now we've got to cross this other big milestone here, then all the work they've done up to this point won't matter. It won't matter if they can't also be envisioned for this. Now, if you think about it, there's a lot of barriers, a lot of barriers that that Nehemiah would face. This guy guy was, I think, once in a generation leader in terms of (laughs) Uh, being committed to this vision, and just challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge, the people would have been quite comfortable. They had built homes in the towns, in the surrounding area. They would have been used to rural life, and now now they've got to get used to to urban life. And they would have had to leave behind their favorite diner and their perfectly manicured lawn and maybe sell their land or... You know, operate their land from afar, and that would have been very complicated, leave behind family and friends. They would have built homes that they would have been very comfortable in. They would have to build new homes in Jerusalem, find new work. And they'd already sacrificed so much. These people had already given up so, so much. Not only were they exiles in Babylon, in, in, in the Persian Empire now at this point, and they would have gotten used to that. Actually, a lot of the people returning, a lot of the exiles returning would have been born there because they were there. They were gone for 70 years. So it would be a different generation, almost like the generation that came out of the wilderness in the first place, a different generation. So, man, it would, they'd already given up so much. They left the comforting surroundings that they'd grown up in, 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 in Persia, and Babylon, and they had to travel about 800 miles to back to desolate Judah, which, which had been abandoned and conquered had not been an environment that had been kept for agriculture and taken care of. So now it's it's a harder place to work. It's the, the the challenges they would have faced, they already had so many things and now now there's a Nehemiah has the task of trying to convince God's people okay guys, there's a bigger purpose. There's a let's live for a bigger purpose. And I want to do today what Nehemiah had to do in his day. I want to paint a picture, both f- in a societal way, but mainly in a spiritual way, for the, the repopulation, think of our church as a city within a city, we're a, a micro city, as it were, but the, the repopulation of our own church, the growth of our own church in our post-pandemic exile, but also of our city in general, to increase the population of believers in our city. I want us to understand the biblical value of honoring and seeing the importance of the city. Seeing and honoring the importance of the city. We've got to see this from God's perspective. If we have our culture's perspective or our own fleshly perspective we'll miss the redemptive plans that God has. For Jerusalem, God had specific redemptive plans throughout lots of history, and especially at this point. For Chicago, God has redemptive plans, important plans. If we look at this city of ours, just as they could have looked at Jerusalem, we look at our own city with human eyes, we are going to be tempted to see it in an earthly way. And I've seen this happen before where people move to the city and they love it. It's exciting and exhilarating and there's so much culture here and all kind of cool things happening. And it's so different to where people are from and, but after a while that the enamor of that, the romance of that can wear off and people we can start looking at it with very human eyes and we look at the parking and we're like, oh, it's just it's unparkable. It's just unparkable. Especially right around here. I know it's particularly bad right here. But God gave us this building to test your character <laughs> as it relates to parking in the most narrow streets in Chicago you could ever find. Thank you, God, for your grace to test our character. It's unparkable. You know, the, the winters are just too wintry, and even even the summers are too summery, and the wind is too windy, and the schools are unschooly, and the, 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 the taxes are, are, are taxing, and you know, the gangs are just too gangy and, um, you know, the politicians are too, you know, they're just politicizing everything, you know. And it's, it's easy to fall into a very human way of viewing this place. And I don't blame, it's, it's natural, it's human tendency to start seeing it with human eyes. Instead, we want to get God's perspective on it and reframe those things, actually correct ourselves if we find ourselves Doing that with any of those things. Those are just some examples. There may be lots of examples. When it comes to parking, realizing that if we've got a car, then we're like in the top 1% of the world. Right? And that parking is a first world problem. So we're driving around in luxury. So we've got to stop whining about that one. About when it comes to the weather, just be grateful you don't live in Canada. That's how I like to think about it. Just for the weather, not for any other reason, we love Canadians, right? It's cold, very cold there, right? The more north you get, it's very cold, in if you, okay, it's very cold in Canada, all right. So even more snow there for longer. The schools, yes, we've got to admit the schools, the school system is broken in our city. It is broken. But we've got to see it through God's eyes. We've got to see this is a redemptive opportunity here. We've got to see, actually, there are a bunch of families who are navigating the, the school system well. There are good administrations and amazing teachers in a lot of these schools that we can't just write it off. Homeschooling is becoming an increasingly good option as well. We've got to reframe these things and see it from God's perspective. Yes, the taxes are too high, so consider that when you're voting as well. Um, But, you know, what? we don't make, as Christians, we don't make decisions based on earthly wealth. We make decisions based on eternal wealth. That's what we make decisions based upon. That shouldn't even factor in to our lives. The gangs situation, yes, that's obviously, we're concerned about that. We wanna see that situation change, but we also gotta understand there's, there's problems everywhere. There's danger everywhere. And as you know, anyone who's lived in Chicago, Chicago long enough, it really depends where you live and what precautions you take. People from outside here think that, you know, people are surprised I haven't been murdered yet. I think I've got actually got family and friends who are surprised I haven't been murdered yet. Like, you live in Chicago? And that's the problem if you just read uh, news headlines, right? We've got to reframe these things and think about these things differently. The corruption in our city means that we need people with integrity to remain here rather than abandoning it. It's very easy for Christians just to take what we want from the city but not realize we're here for a mission, for a redemptive purpose, to infuse it with fairness. Because there's a lot of justice issues in our city and lots of different ways to, hey, the police need more reform more change, all of that. And how can we be a presence towards all of those things? If we find ourselves despising this place and looking at it with human eyes and just, I hate this about it, and I hate this about it, I hate this about it, we've, we need to probably repent and start asking, God, give me your perspective. This environment is one of the greatest mission fields in the world right now. In history, what's tend, or recent history, what's tended to happen is, you know, the West has typically been very Christian and has sent a lot of missionaries around the world and uh, to the East in particular. And now we're seeing a reversal of this, that now uh, Eastern Christians tend to view the West as an unreached people group because we've fallen. The West has fallen. We've completely lost our Christian roots. We've lost the plot, lost the game. That's why our society is unraveling right in front of our eyes. And now missionaries are being sent from the east to the west because we're an unreached people group. So we have to view ourselves as missionaries in this place. That's the perspective. That's the view of God. Let's look at some reasons why cities in particular matter. We've got ten reasons here why cities matter. Number one, cities are biblical. So excluding the hubris, which is um, the Tower of Babel, Um, The Bible is urban positive, so cities are intended to be places of refuge, safety, and of mission. Cities are populous. City dwellers aren't more valuable, yet because cities have higher populations, they carry greater weight, number three. Cities are influential. Culture is made and propagated by cities. So anyone desiring to reach a region might consider living in that region's city. That's actually what the Apostle Paul in particular did. Cities are diverse. There is no greater melting pot to seek heaven's vision of a unified Christian community than major cities. Number five, cities are inevitable. Increased populations unavoidably lead to saturation and development. 70% of the world is predicted to be urban by 2050. Number six, desirable. Emerging generations are enchanted with cities and value cultural experiences, diversity Sustainability, prolonged singleness, and smaller families. Number seven, innovative cities foster breakthroughs by excelling in higher education, business competition, and cutting edge research. Number eight, they're global. Cities chart global direction. Cities gather people from every nation under heaven, they are portals to the whole world. Number nine, cities are loved. God loves cities because there are more people in them. God values each life equally, yet cities seem to have an extra special focus. And you see that specifically in the book of Jonah, Jonah being sent to Nineveh in the Old Testament. And then number 10, cities are eternal. Earthly cities won't last forever, but at least our ones won't, but God's eternal dwelling place and ours is described as a city. What an honoring picture. If you're somebody who has come to Chicago from elsewhere and your plan is to say, I'm going to be here for a few years, one or two years. Could I ask you to extend that, to add a year or two? Stay for three or four. If you were planning on being here for five or six, could you pray and and consider, maybe I could extend it for a year or two. Extend it. Add as much time as you can. Your presence is so important to the redemptive purposes of God in our generation. It really shouldn't matter the time frame or the plans that we have. Our plans, of course, should be very open-handed to God. No matter where we live, we should put down roots. We should live here like we mean it. We should live here not to use it for our own blessing, but live here to be a blessing. And if God moves us on, then that's in his providence. That's in his plan. That's in his work. But to put down roots and to say, I want to be here and live here in such a way that I want to make the greatest impact. I don't want to play the game of the Christian life. I want to be a Christian in this environment. Let me ask you, don't rule Chicago out of your heart. Don't rule it out of your heart. Be open to staying here for the long term. I'm praying that as a church, our corporate response to the Nehemiah call, the the call that Nehemiah had in his day and the call that God has for us in our day, that our response would be to say, God, here I am. Send me. Here I am, God. Send me. Heather and I and our kids have been doing this for the last 13 years. We didn't grow up in a city like Chicago. Um, and uh, we felt like God called our family to this place to, um, to start this church and to reach this city. And there are lots of things to love about this place. And let me encourage you to not just to look to us, but to look to others who have decided this is God's call. This is, at least for the time being, this is God's call. This is what people are doing. Look to the example of others, that their lives be a vision, be a picture to look to and say, that's the kind of life that I could live, or at least the attitude towards that, but also that specifically. Let me talk about some, one of the big challenges to living this out for American Christians um, is the vision that our culture paints for us. So, the vision we're getting from Nehemiah is, hey, we've got to populate the city. We've got to reinvigorate and, and envision people for the city. It's so important. We're contending with a vision that is painted for us in our culture that can be very tempting and very, have, have a great, great appeal to our hearts because we can think this is God's vision for our lives. So almost to the point where we kind of view, even, even want to build the kind of life almost like the Truman Show. You've seen that movie, The Truman Show, where everything's in its perfect place and perfectly predicted. Life is predictable and got my little house with my white picket fence and product placement all the time and living. And I want to expose an American mindset that, that, that Western Christians can struggle with. We can struggle with there's a trajectory in life that you're supposed to follow, There's a vision for life. You're supposed to have a five-year plan, and it's supposed to look like this, and you're supposed to live for these ideals and live for these values and not realize my life is supposed to serve a bigger purpose, and all of my decisions and where I live and how I live, it's all up for grabs. It's all in God's hands. I need to trust Him with it and not just be pulled along by the cultural tides and by the powers in, in our culture. And so I want to expose some of the expectations in our culture that we swim in. We're swimming in a culture That expects life to go a certain way. And as Christians, sometimes we don't realize how impacted we are by that. How we adopt that as God's vision for our lives. So it goes something like this. The idea is, graduate college. Land a job in a big city. Find a spouse. Get a dog. Right? Start a family. Move to the suburbs. Get a giant garage so I can store all the stuff I don't use anymore, right? Own at least three flat screen TVs. Get a bigger house. Make sure my kids are constantly in sports every second of every day. An extracurricular activity, driving everywhere, only going to chain restaurants. And therefore adding more notches to the belt as time goes by. Making sure my kids get into the best school and the best college and hopefully retiring early and going on lots of cruises and probably end up playing lots of bingo and watching lots of Wheel of Fortune and end up having perfect white dentures and then dying. (laughs) With perfectly white dentures. And I kind of want to paint it in such a way that, that we would have... A kingdom discussed if we're tempted, if we're, if we're lusting after the, 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 the pull of the world, that the world wants to pull us in, that we say that's the kind of life you should have, those are the kind of comforts you should have, because our idols in our culture are comfort and security and wealth and prosperity. In fact, uh, author Randy Alcorn. Because people will say, oh, God's blessed America so much. We're so prosperous. But, but author Randy Alcorn's actually suggested that if God wanted to curse a nation, he actually might give them a bunch of money. Because money has so much power over the human heart. And so we can lust after the life of the world, the life that the world says, this is the pathway you should follow. And I hope that none of us, I hope that if we are tempted by that, if we're being sucked into that, that we would turn from that, that we would return to God. Say Maybe our like somebody people's lives might end up looking that way, but that's not the point. The point is walking in the, in the footsteps of Jesus and following the plans of God in our generation and our time, understanding the, our lives, our small lives, our time on this earth serves an eternal purpose that we will be blessed forever for. We don't want to be like Jonah. God sent Jonah. God was like, you got to go to Nineveh. What did he do? He hated the Ninevites and rejected and ran away, ran the other way. We don't want to be like Jonah. We want to have God's heart for the cities of the world that are lost. We want to have Nehemiah's heart here where he is now going to be repopulating the city, convincing people, casting a vision, and we've got, we got to fill this place. Otherwise, what's it all for? Otherwise, why have we been pouring in to this and building this? And so Nehemiah, actually, this, this whole chapter we read is it's, it's a long list, but it's actually two lists. And the first list that he gives is the initial census or record, the public record he pulled out of the public library. And it was all the the first group of people, the first group of exiles that had returned. And they'd already been there for a while, actually, with Ezra and some others. And he mentioned some other names here. They'd already been there for a while. And that's, that's one list. But then the second list is now the a summary of the current population and all their resources and also gifts that they had given, monetary contributions that they made. So these are the two lists and I think there's a, a few reasons why these two lists are presented to us. Uh, one is probably a practical thing here is to say like, hey did we miss anyone, anyone from the first count? Is there, you know, are we going to do a, a proper count now? Did we, do we need to go back and amend our records? Uh, there's that. Also, he wanted to find out the priestly lineage so they could restore proper worship of God uh, from the priestly system. That was definitely mentioned in the passage. But I think there's another glaring reason here shining through that we've got to pay attention to is the first list represents the first generation, the first wave of people that came in that made the greatest sacrifice. Because now at this point, when this census is taken, now it's way easier to return. I could imagine a lot of people being like, oh, yeah, I could go back to Jerusalem now. You know, I wasn't sure before, but now I just feel like God's telling me to go. And it's easy to do it, but the first wave, they had faith it wasn't safe. It hadn't been fortified. There was even no plan to restore it. Nehemiah hadn't shown up with the resources. And so I think every generation needs a reminder, this is the list of the people that came before you that sacrificed greatly to build the foundation that we now stand upon so that we can continue to build into the future for the glory of God, for the purpose of God in our generation, not squandering and losing the ground that we have taken, but building upon that ground. Every generation needs to be reminded of that to build up our faith so we don't lose that eternal, long-term perspective. So for us, we can think about somebody like William Tyndale, Born in, what year was he born in? He was born in 1494. And William Tyndale, under threat of death, translated the Bible into English. And then was ultimately betrayed by a friend. So not too much of a friend after all, I guess. And was executed for his work. Because of him, we have Bibles. When we look at the list of the generations, of the sacrifices that were made before us, it energizes us, it gives us faith, it reminds us of the shoulders that we stand on, of what we're doing, why we're here. Think of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, born in, what year was he born? He was in uh, 1832. Hudson Taylor, the greatest missionary to China. And he paid a price for it, though. Of his nine children, five of them died during the grueling work, grueling missionary work that they had. And at the time of, Hudson Taylor's death himself, 125,000 Chinese had heard the gospel. And his legacy or his life laid the foundation for the explosive growth of Christianity in the East, in Asia, and around the world as well. It's amazing to think about that. Also think about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot who was born in 1926, a missionary to Ecuador. Her and her husband went to reach a tribe, a local tribe there. Tragically, her husband was killed by the tribe that they were trying to reach. But she spent two years after that trying and reaching the very people that murdered her husband. We got to get perspective We've got to get perspective. We've got to look at the list of people that came before say this was the first wave. And then we've got to realize we're in the second list. This is our moment, our time. We're standing on the shoulders of others who have gone before us to build something significant for God's kingdom. Let me ask you, would you stay in Chicago for the long term? Would you help build a significant ministry in this place. Because from this place, from this city, we can touch the world. We can touch every tribe and every tongue. And we can glorify God in this place. This is a fallen, lost place. And we're here with redemptive plans, redemptive purposes. You know, cities build grit in our, in our lives and in our souls. And I think children that grow up in cities... Actually, you know, urban kids are, are some of the boldest people you can probably ever meet. They're kind of not afraid of anything. And we want that. We want that for our kids. We want that for future generations of Christians who will say we're here on fire for Jesus with the mission that he has called us to, that he has given to us. So to be an urban Christian, to be a city Christian, means you got to be extra salty. Right? We're called to be salt and light. Jesus said we're called to be salt and light. So, so if you're a salty person, it's a perfect fit for you. But cities, <laughs> cities also though grow that 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 saltiness in us. You, you got to be. It's a, it's a tough environment to be a witness at times. But hey, we want we want to we want to be like these salty believers here who are like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna pay the price. We're gonna lay down our lives for this. We're gonna move in and repopulate and reinvigorate and say this matters. This matters for our time, for our generation, for our day, where I think actually, you know what, a sentiment I hear from a lot of Christians is, hate the city, abandon the city, it's gone, it's dark, it's a hellhole, and that's not God's heart, that's not God's perspective. Yes, there are things that we don't always align with or agree with or like, but this is, you know, the, 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 the vision of American life is not heaven. So we want to pursue the real heaven, which is in the next life. This life, we're missionaries here in this place. That's the kind of life we want to live. These Christians, or these believers, these Old Testament saints, I should say, they didn't just restore the city and value it and receive the vision from Nehemiah to repopulate it. They poured their wealth into it as well. we're We're given a list here of very generous amounts of money that they poured in to fund it. And I just want to again say thank you to all of you who generously and faithfully support our ministry and our church here. Through the pandemic, as we talked about recently, we saw our church attendance go down and therefore our giving go down. We're still operational, praise God. And we're beginning now as a response from our church to see the ship turn around in that regard. So praise God for that. That's really good. But I just want to thank everybody for their generosity and their gifts uh, that come to us. And if you consider Trinity to be your church but you're not practicing what these people practiced, and you're not giving that consistent tithe to our ministry. Let me ask you to, let me push you over the ledge today. All right. Or, uh, <laughs> no, that's the wrong, uh, what's the right thing? Uh, push you into the deep end, right? You know, don't worry, I'll throw you a life jacket if you drown, right? So, um, but, but just encourage that, that generosity. Think about the Bible like this. The Bible is a story. Begins in a garden and ends in a city. And cities show up in the life and ministry of Jesus as well, actually. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, it says about Jesus that he went and lived in a city. And in John chapter 12 as well, we see what do we see? We see Jesus entering Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So the city that Nehemiah and his generation restored. Praise God they restored it because now. In the life of Jesus, what happens at the height of Jesus' ministry, Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's called the triumphal entry, on a donkey as a humble leader, as a humble king, and he is worshipped. The people are crying out, Hosanna, they're laying down palm branches, they're waving palm branches, celebrating, exalting God. And this could not have happened if Nehemiah's generation hadn't have rebuilt Jerusalem. God receives the greatest glory when we follow his plans and follow his work and we build towards his mission and his end. It was, it was the density of the city. It was the centrality of the city. It was the diversity of the city and the importance of the city that meant there was a hustle and a bustle. That meant the nations were there. It meant that so many people were there so that when Jesus came in, he would receive the greatest praise, the greatest glory, the greatest applause that could ever be given. This is how the Bible works together. It's a glorious, amazing thing. Jesus entered the city for the greatest adoration and praise. Humbly, not to overthrow the Roman government, but to subvert it in a completely different way, in a way that nobody could have imagined, to glorify himself, to do the greatest victory in history, to defeat Satan, sin, and death. To overcome the evil of the human heart, to set us free, and to ultimately to say we're building towards the he- the heavenly city. That's what we're building towards. Yes, we build the cities of earth. That's what we're yes we're doing that. We're building righteous kingdoms as best we can now. But the big goal, the ultimate goal, is that heavenly city. Let's respond to that calling. Consider how you can respond to Jesus today. Perhaps you want to give your life to Christ. Only He can save you of your sin and give you the promise of eternal life. Respond. Actually, on the back of this Connect card you have, everyone make sure you you turn in this Connect card today and you've got an offering envelope you can turn in as well, whether you're using it or not, still turn that in. But on the back of this Connect card, there's an option here that says, follow Jesus for the first time. If that's you today, let us know. Other steps you can take. Join a small group today. Get more involved at Trinity today. Whatever Whatever you need to do to respond to the call of God, do that today.